0: CHAPTER 49 Which recounts the clever conversation that Sancho Panza had with his master, Don Quixote. Ah, said Sancho, I've got you there. That's what I wanted to know with all my heart and soul. Come, senor, can you deny what people usually say when a person's not feeling well? I don't know what's wrong with so-and-so. He doesn't eat or drink or sleep or answer sensibly when you talk to him. He must be enchanted." "'From that you can conclude that people who don't eat or drink or sleep or do "'the natural things I've mentioned are enchanted, "'but not people who want to do what your grace wants to do, "'and who drink when someone hands them water, "'and eat when there's food to be had, "'and answer every question that's asked of them.' "'What you say is true, Sancho,' responded Don Quixote, "'but I have already told you that there are many forms of enchantment, "'and it well may be that in the course of time one sort has replaced another.' And perhaps in the kinds they use nowadays, those who have been enchanted do everything I do, although they did not do so before. In short, one must not argue with or draw conclusions from the custom of the day. I know and believe that I am enchanted, and that suffices to make my conscience easy, for it would weigh heavily on me if I thought I was not enchanted, and in sloth and cowardice had allowed myself to be imprisoned in this cage.' "'depriving the helpless and weak of the assistance I could provide, "'for at this very moment there must be many in urgent need "'of my succor and protection.' "'Even so,' replied Sancho, "'for your greater ease and satisfaction, "'it would be a good idea for your grace "'to try to get out of this prison. "'And I promise I'll do everything I can "'to help to get your grace out and back on your good Rocinante, "'who also seems enchanted. "'He's so melancholy and sad.' And when we've done that, we'll try our luck again and search for more adventures, and if things don't go well for us, we'll still have time to get back to the cage where I promise, like a good and loyal squire, to lock myself up along with your grace in case your grace is so unfortunate or I'm so simple that we can't manage to do what i said. I am happy to do as you say, Sancho, my brother, replied Don Quixote and when you have the opportunity to effect my liberty, I shall obey you completely in everything. But you will see, Sancho, how mistaken you are in your understanding of my misfortune. This conversation engaged the knight-errant and his erring squire until they reached the spot where the priest, the canon, and the barber, who had already dismounted, were waiting for them. The driver unyoked the oxen from the cart, and allowed them to roam free in that green and peaceful place whose freshness was so inviting, if not to persons as enchanted as Don Quixote, then to those as capable and clever as his squire, who pleaded with the priest to allow his master out of the cage for a while, because if they did not let him out, his prison would not be as clean as decency demanded for a knight like his master.' The priest understood him and said he would gladly do as he asked if he were not afraid that as soon as his master found himself free he would do one of those mad things so typical of him and go away and never be seen by anyone again. "'I'll guarantee that he won't run away,' responded Sancho. "'And I'll guarantee that and more,' said the canon. "'If he gives me his word as a gentleman and a knight,' that he will not go away from us until we agree he can. "'I do give it,' responded Don Quixote, who was listening to everything, "'especially since one who is enchanted as I am "'is not free to do with his person what he might wish, "'because whoever enchanted him can make him stand stock still "'and not move from a spot for three centuries, "'and if he were to flee, he would be flown back through the air. "'Since this was true, they could certainly release him.' "'especially since it would be to everyone's benefit. "'And he protested that if they did not release him, "'the smell would surely trouble them "'unless they moved a good distance away. "'The canon took one of Don Quixote's hands, "'although both were tied together, "'and on the basis of the knight's promise and word, "'they let him out of the cage.' and he was infinitely and immensely happy to find himself free, and the first thing he did was to stretch his entire body, and then he went up to Rosinante, slapped him twice on the haunches, and said, I still hope to God and his blessed mother, O flower and paragon of horses, that we soon shall see ourselves as we wish to be, you with your master on your back, and I mounted on you and exercising the profession for which God put me in this world. And having said this, Don Quixote moved away with Sancho to a remote spot and returned much relieved and even more desirous of putting his squire's plan into effect. The canon looked at him, marvelling at the strangeness of his profound madness and at how he displayed a very fine intelligence when he spoke and responded to questions, his feet slipping from the stirrups, as has been said many times before, only when the subject was chivalry. And so, after everyone had sat on the green grass to wait for the provisions, the canon, moved by compassion, said to him, "'Is it possible, senor, that the grievous and idle reading of books of chivalry could have so affected your grace that it has unbalanced your judgment and made you believe that you are enchanted, along with other things of this nature which are as far from being true as truth is from lies? How is it possible?' that any human mind could be persuaded that there has existed in the world that infinity of Amadises, and that throng of so many famous knights, so many emperors of Trebizond, so many Felix Martes of Ircania, so many palfreys and wandering damsels, so many serpents and dragons and giants, so many unparalleled adventures and different kinds of enchantments, so many battles and fierce encounters, so much splendid attire, so many enamoured princesses and squires who are counts and dwarves who are charming, so many love letters, so much wooing, so many valiant women, and finally, so many nonsensical matters as are contained in the books of chivalry. For myself, I can say that when I read them, As long as I do not set my mind to thinking that they are all frivolous lies, I do derive some pleasure from them, but when I realize what they actually are, I throw even the best of them against the wall, and would even toss them in the fire if one were near, and think they richly deserved the punishment for being deceptive and false and far beyond the limits of common sense.' like the founders of new sects and new ways of life, and for giving the ignorant rabble a reason to believe and consider as true all the absurdities they contain. They are so audacious. They dare perturb the minds of judicious and well-born gentlemen, as can be plainly seen in what they have done to your grace.' for they have brought you to the point where it has been necessary to lock you in a cage and carry you on an ox-cart as if you were a lion or tiger, being transported from town to town so that people could pay to see you. Come, come, senor Don Quixote, take pity on yourself.' Return to the bosom of good sense and learn to use the considerable intelligence that heaven was pleased to give you and devote your intellectual talents to another kind of reading that redounds to the benefit of your conscience and the increase of your honor. And if, following your natural inclination, you still wish to read books about great chivalric deeds, read Judges in Holy Scripture.' And there you will find magnificent truths and deeds, both remarkable and real. Lusitania had a viriato. Rome had a Caesar. Carthage a Hannibal. Greece an Alexander. Castilla a Count Fernan González. Valencia a Cid. Andalusia a Gonzalo Fernández. Extremadura a Diego Garcia de Paredes. Heres a Garci-Pérez de Vargas. Toledo a Garcilaso. Sevilla... "'and Don Manuel de Leon. "'Reading about their valorous deeds "'can entertain, instruct, delight, "'and astonish the highest minds. "'This would certainly be a study "'worthy of your grace's intelligence, "'Señor Don Quixote. "'And from it you would emerge "'learned in history, enamored of virtue, "'instructed in goodness, "'improved in your customs, "'valiant but not rash, "'bold and not cowardly, and all of this would honour God and benefit you, and add to the fame of La Mancha, where, I have learned, your grace has his origin and birthplace. Don Quixote listened very attentively to the canon's words, and when he saw that he had concluded, he looked at him for a long time and said, It seems to me, senor, that the intention of your grace's discourse has been to persuade me "'that there have been no knights errant in the world, "'and that all the books of chivalry are false, untrue, harmful, "'and of no value to the nation, "'and that I have done wrong to read them, "'and worse, to believe them, "'and worse yet, to imitate them "'by setting myself the task of following "'the extremely difficult profession of knight-errantry "'which they teach. "'And you deny that there ever were Amadises in the world, "'whether of Gaul or of Greece, "'or any of the other knights that fill the writings.' "'That is precisely what I meant. "'What you have said is absolutely correct,' said the canon, "'to which Don Quixote responded, "'Your Grace also said that these books have done me a good deal of harm, "'for they turned my wits and put me in a cage, "'and it would be better for me to alter and change my reading "'and devote myself to books that are truer and more pleasant and more instructive.' "'That is true,' said the canon. "'Well, then,' replied Don Quixote, It is my opinion that the one who is deranged and enchanted is your grace, for you have uttered so many blasphemies against something so widely accepted in the world as true that whoever denies it, as your grace has done, deserves the same punishment that your grace says you give to books when you read them and they anger you. Because wanting to convince anyone that there was no Amadis in the world or any of the adventuring knights who fill the histories is the same as trying to persuade that person that the sun does not shine, ice is not cold, and the earth bears no crops. For what mind in the world can persuade another that the story of Princess Floripace and Guy de Bourgogne is not true, or the tale of Fierre Bras and the Bridge of Mantible, which occurred in the time of Charlemagne, and is as true as the fact that it is now day? If that is a lie, it must also be true that there was no Hector no Achilles, no Trojan War, no twelve peers of France, no King Arthur of England who was transformed into a crow and whose return is awaited in his kingdom to this day. Who will go so far as to say that the history of Guarino Meschino is false, and the search for the Holy Grail, and that the loves of Don Tristan and Queen Isoult and those of Guinevere and Lancelot, are apocryphal? "'even though there are persons who can almost remember "'having seen the Duena Quintanona, "'who was the greatest pourer of wine in Great Britain. "'And this is so true "'that I remember my paternal grandmother saying, "'whenever she saw a lady with a formal headdress, "'My boy, she looks like the Duena Quintanona," "'And from this I argue that she must have known her "'or at least seen a portrait of her. "'And who can deny the truth of the history of Pieres "'and the beautiful Magalona?' "'For even today one can see in the royal armory the peg, "'slightly larger than a carriage-pole, "'with which the valiant pierres directed the wooden horse "'as he rode it through the air. "'And next to the peg is the saddle of Babieca, "'and at Roncesvalles there is Roland's horn, "'the size of a large rafter, "'from which one can infer that there were twelve peers, "'and a pierres and a Cid, and other knights like them, "'the ones that people say go searching for adventures.' "'If you deny that, you will also tell me it is not true "'that the valiant Lusitanian Juan de Merlo "'was a knight-errant who went to Burgundy "'and fought at the city of Arras "'with the famous lord of Charny, called Monsignor Pierès, "'and then in the city of Baal with Monsignor Henri de Remestant, "'emerging from both undertakings victorious "'and covered with honour and fame. "'You will deny the adventures and challenges "'also carried out in Burgundy "'by the valiant Spaniards Pedro Barba and Gutierrez Quijada.' from whom I am descended directly through the mayor line, when they conquered the sons of the Count of San Polo. You will deny as well that Don Fernando de Guevara went to seek adventures in Germany, where he fought with Monsieur Jorge, a knight in the house of the Duke of Austria. You will say that the jousts of Suero de Quiñones at the pass were a deception, and you will deny the feats of Monsignor Luis de Falses against Don Gonzalo de Guzman, a Castilian knight as well as many other deeds performed by Christian knights from these kingdoms and from foreign ones, deeds so authentic and true that I say again that whoever denies them must be lacking in all reason and good sense. The canon was astonished when he heard Don Quixote's mixture of truth and falsehood and saw how well informed he was regarding everything related to and touching on the exploits of knight-errantry. And so he responded, I cannot deny, Senor Don Quixote, that some of what your grace has said is true, especially with regard to Spanish knights, errant. By the same token, I also wish to concede that there were twelve peers of France.' though I cannot believe they did all those things that Archbishop Turpin writes about them, because the truth of the matter is that they were knights chosen by the kings of France and were called peers because they were all equal in worth, nobility, and valor, or at least, if they were not, they should have been. They were like a religious order, similar to the modern orders of Santiago or Calatrava in which one supposes that those who profess are, or should be, worthy, valiant, and well-born knights, and just as today one calls a man a knight of San Juan, or a knight of Alcantara, in those days one said a knight of the twelve peers, because they were twelve equal knights selected for this military order. As for El Cid, there can be no doubt that he existed, and certainly none about Bernardo del Carpio, but I think it exceedingly doubtful that they performed the deeds people say they did. With regard to the peg of Count Pieris, which you mentioned as being next to the saddle of Babieca in the royal armory, I confess my sin. I am so ignorant, or so short-sighted, that although I have seen the saddle, I have never laid eyes on the peg, especially if it is as big as your grace says it is. Well, it is there, no doubt about it, replied Don Quixote and they also say it is kept in a cowhide sheath, to protect it from rust. "'That well may be,' responded the canon, "'but by the orders I received, I do not remember seeing it. "'And even if I concede that it is there, "'I am not therefore obliged to believe the histories of so many Amadises, "'or those of that throng of knights about whom they tell us stories, "'nor is it reasonable for an honourable man like your Grace, "'possessed of your qualities and fine understanding.' "'to accept as true the countless absurd exaggerations "'that are written in those nonsensical books of chivalry.' "'Chapter 50 "'Regarding the astute arguments that Don Quixote had with the canon, "'as well as other matters. "'That is really good,' responded Don Quixote. "'Books that are printed with a royal license.' and with the approval of those officials to whom they are submitted, and read to widespread delight, and celebrated by great and small, poor and rich, educated and ignorant, low-born and gentry, in short, by all kinds of persons of every rank and station, can they possibly be a lie, especially when they bear so close a resemblance to the truth?' and tell us about the father, the mother, the nation, the family, the age, the birthplace, and the great deeds, point by point and day by day, of the night or nights in question. Be quiet, Your Grace, and do not say such blasphemies, and believe me when I tell you what you, as an intelligent man, must do in this matter, which is to read these books, and then you will see the pleasure you derive from them. If you do not agree, then tell me, is there any greater joy than seeing before our very eyes, you might say, a great lake of boiling pitch. And in it, swimming and writhing about, there are many snakes, serpents, lizards, and many other kinds of fierce and fearsome creatures. And from the middle of the lake there comes an extremely sad voice, saying, Thou, O knight, whosoever thou mayest be, who looketh upon this fearful lake, if thou wishest to grasp the treasure hidden beneath these ebon waters... "'Display the valour of thy mighty heart, "'and throw thyself into the midst of its black and burning liquid. "'For if thou wilt not, thou canst not be worthy "'of gazing upon the wondrous marvels contained "'and enclosed within the seven castles of the seven enchantresses "'which lieth beneath this blackness. "'And no sooner has the knight heard the fearsome voice "'than without hesitating or stopping to consider the danger he faces.' and without even stripping off the weight of his heavy armor, he commends himself to God and his Lady and throws himself into the middle of the boiling lake. And when he cannot see or imagine where he will land, he finds himself among flowering meadows, even more beautiful than the Elysian Fields. There it seems to him that the sky is more translucent and the sun shines with a new clarity. Before him lies a peaceful grove of trees so green and leafy their verdure brings joy to his eyes, while his ears are charmed by the sweet, untutored song of the infinite number of small, brightly colored birds that fly among the intricate branches. Here he discovers a brook whose cool waters, like liquid crystal, run over fine sand and white pebbles that seem like sifted gold and perfect pearls. "'There he sees a fountain artfully composed of varicolored jasper and smooth marble. "'Over there he sees another fountain, fashioned as a grotto, "'where tiny clamshells and the coiled white and yellow houses of the snail "'are arranged with conscious disorder and mixed with bits of shining glass "'and counterfeit emeralds, forming so varied a pattern "'that art imitating nature here seems to surpass it. "'Suddenly there appears before him a fortified castle.' or elegant fortress, whose walls are made of solid gold, its parapets of diamonds, its doors of sapphires. In short, it is so wonderfully built that although its materials are nothing less than diamonds, carbuncles, rubies, pearls, gold, and emeralds, its workmanship is even finer. And after this, is there any more marvellous sight?' And seeing a good number of damsels come out through the gate of the castle, wearing dresses so splendid and sumptuous, that if I began now to describe them as the histories do, I should never finish. And then the maiden, who seems the leader among them, takes by the hand the bold knight who threw himself into the boiling lake, and, without saying a word, guides him inside the rich fortress or castle." and has him strip as naked as the day as he was born, and bathes him in warm water, and then smooths his entire body with sweet-smelling ointments, and dresses him in a shirt of finest silk, all fragrant and perfumed. And then another damsel comes and covers his shoulders with a cloak that they say is worth at least a city and even more. What better sight, after all this, than when we are told that he is taken to another chamber where he finds tables laid so lavishly he is stunned and amazed. Observe him as he pours over his hands water that is distilled with ambergris and scented flowers, and see him sit on a chair of ivory and watch him being served by all the damsels who maintain a wondrous silence as they bring him so many different foods, so exquisitely prepared that appetite does not know where to place its hands.' How marvellous is it to hear the music that plays as he eats, though he does not know who is singing or where. And when the meal is over and the table's cleared and the knight is reclining in his chair, perhaps cleaning his teeth with a toothpick, as is the custom, to have another damsel, much more beautiful than any of the others, come in through the chamber door and sit beside the knight and begin to explain to him what castle this is and that she resides there and is enchanted, and many other things that amaze the knight and astound the readers who are reading his history. I do not wish to go any further with this, for one can gather from what I have said that any one can read any part of any history of a knight errant, and from it derive great pleasure and delight. And your grace should believe me when I tell you, as I already have, to read these books, and you will see... How they drive away melancholy, if you are so afflicted, and improve your spirits if they happen to be low. For myself, I can say that since I became a knight-errant, I have been valiant, well-mannered, liberal, polite, generous, courteous, bold, gentle, patient, long-suffering in labours, imprisonments and enchantments. And although only a short while ago I saw myself locked in a cage like a madman, I think that with the valour of my arm, and heaven favouring me, and fortune not opposing me, in a few days I shall find myself the king of some kingdom where I can display the gratitude and liberality of my heart. For by my faith, senor, the poor man is incapable of displaying the virtue of liberality with anyone, even if he possesses it to the greatest degree. And gratitude that consists of nothing more than a desire— is a dead thing, as faith without works is dead. For this reason, I should like fortune to offer me, without delay, an opportunity to become an emperor, so that I can display my heartfelt desire to do good for my friends, especially this poor Sancho Panza, my squire, who is the best man in the world. And I should like to give him a countship, which I promised him many days ago, even though... I fear he may not have the ability to govern his estate. As soon as Sancho heard these last words of his master, he said, "'Your grace, senor Don Quixote, should work to give me the countship "'that has been promised by your grace and hoped for by me, "'and I promise you I'll have no lack of ability to govern it. "'And if I do, I've heard it said that there are men in the world "'who farm the estates of gentlemen and pay them so much each year "'and manage everything.' "'and the gentleman sits with his feet up, "'enjoying the rent they pay him "'and not worrying about anything else. "'And that's what I'll do. "'I won't haggle over trifles, "'but I'll turn my back on everything "'and enjoy my rent like a duke "'and let the others do the work.' "'Brother Sancho,' said the Canon. That's fine, as far as enjoying the rent is concerned, but the administration of justice has to be tended to by the owner of the estate, and this is where ability and good judgment come in, and, in particular, a real intention to do what is right. For if this is lacking at the beginning, the middle and the end will always be wrong. In this way, God tends to favor the virtuous desires of the simple man and confound the wicked intentions of the intelligent.' "'I don't know about these philosophies,' responded Sancho Panza. "'All I know is that as soon as I have the countship, I'll know how to govern it. "'I have as much soul as any other man, and as much body as the biggest of them. "'And I'll be as much a king of my estate as any other is of his. "'And this being true, I'll do what I want. "'And doing what I want, I'll do what I like. "'And doing what I like, I'll be happy. "'And when a man is happy, he doesn't wish for anything else. "'And not wishing for anything else... That'll be the end of it, so bring on my estate. And, God willing, we'll see, as one blind man said to the other. Those aren't bad philosophies, as you call them, Sancho, but even so there is a good deal to say regarding this matter of townships. To which Don Quixote replied, I do not know if there is more to say. I am guided only by the example of the great Amadis of Gaul, who made his squire Count of Insula Firme, Therefore I can, without scruple or question of conscience, make account of Sancho Panza, who is one of the best squires a knight-errant ever had. The canon was astounded by the reasoned nonsense spoken by Don Quixote, by the manner in which he had described the adventure of the knight of the lake, by the impression that had been made on him by the intentional lies of the books he had read, and finally, by the simple-mindedness of Sancho. Who so fervently desired to obtain the countship his master had promised him. By now the canon's servants had returned from the inn, where they had gone for the pack mule, and making a table of a rug and the meadow's green grass, they sat in the shade of some trees and ate their meal there, so that the ox driver could take advantage of the grazing for his animals, as we have already said. While they were eating, they suddenly heard a loud noise. "'and the tinkling of a small bell "'from some nearby brambles and heavy underbrush. "'And at the same time they saw a beautiful "'black, white, and grey spotted nanny-goat "'emerge from the thicket. "'Behind her came a goatherd, calling to her, "'saying the words that goat herds say "'to make their animals stop or return to the flock. "'The fugitive goat, frightened and apprehensive, "'came up to the company as if asking for their help, "'and there she stopped. "'The goatherd ran up, "'seized her by the horns, and as if she were capable of rational thought and speech, said to her, "'Ah, Spot, my Spot, you're so wild these days, dashing all around. "'What wolves are scaring you, my girl? Won't you tell me what's wrong, my pretty? "'What else can it be but that you're a female and can't be quiet, "'and the devil take your condition and all those females you're imitating?' Come back, come back, my friend, and if you're not happy, at least you'll be safer in the fold, or with your companions, and if you, who are supposed to lead and guide them, go astray without a guide, what will happen to them? The goatherd's words amused those who were listening, especially the canon, who said to him, By your life, brother, calm down a little, and do not hurry to return that goat so quickly to her flock. For since she is a female, as you say, she must follow her natural instinct, no matter how you may try to prevent it. "'Eat something and have a drink to cool your anger. "'And in the meantime the nanny-goat can rest.' "'And saying this, and handing him a hind quarter of cold rabbit "'on the tip of a knife, were all one. "'The goat-herd accepted it with thanks. "'He drank and grew calm, and then he said, "'I would not want your graces to think I'm simple "'just because I talk to this animal sensibly, "'as if she could understand, for the truth is, "'the words I said are not mysterious. "'A rustic I may be.' but not so rustic that I don't understand how to talk to men and to beasts. "'I certainly believe that,' said the priest. "'For I already know from experience that mountains breed learned men "'and shepherds' huts house philosophers.' "'At least, senor,' replied the goatherd, "'they shelter men who have suffered greatly. "'And so that you may believe this truth and touch it with your hand, "'even though I seem to be inviting myself without being asked,' If it does not trouble you to do so, and if it is your wish, senores, lend me your ears for a while, and I shall tell you a truth that confirms what this gentleman, and he pointed to the priest, and I have said. To which Don Quixote responded, Because this matter seems to have some shadow of a knightly adventure, I, for my part, shall hear you very willingly, brother.' And all of these gentlemen will do the same, for they are very intelligent and are fond of curious and extraordinary things that amaze, delight, and entertain the senses, as I think your story undoubtedly will. Begin then, my friend, and all of us shall listen. I pass, said Sancho. I'm going over to that brook with this meat pie where I plan to eat enough for three days, because I've heard my master, Don Quixote, say that the squire of a knight errant has to eat whenever he can, and as much as he can because they might go into woods so deep they can't find their way out again for six days, and if the man isn't full or his saddlebags aren't well provisioned, he might stay there, as often happens, until his flesh wrinkles and dries like a mummy's. You are correct, Sancho, said Don Quixote. Go where you wish and eat what you can. I am satisfied, and all I need is to nourish my spirit, which I shall do by listening to this good man's story. And so shall we all, said the Canon. Then he asked the goatherd to begin the tale he had promised. The goatherd gave the goat, which he was holding by the horns, two slaps on the haunches and said, Lie down next to me, Spot. There's time before we have to return to the fold. The nanny-goat seemed to understand him, because when her master sat down, she lay down next to him very calmly and looked into his face, as if letting him know that she was listening to what he was saying. And the goatherd began his story in this fashion. Chapter 51 Which recounts what the goatherd told to all those who were taking Don Quixote home. Three leagues from this valley is a village that, although small, is one of the richest in the entire region. In it there lived a farmer who was very well respected, so respected, in fact, that although honour tends to go with wealth, he was more honoured for his virtue than for the riches he had achieved. But his greatest happiness, as he would say, was having a daughter of such extraordinary beauty and exceptional intelligence, grace, and virtue that whoever knew her and saw her marveled to see the unsurpassed gifts that heaven and nature had granted her. As a child, she was comely, and as she grew, so did her loveliness. And at the age of sixteen, she was exceedingly beautiful. The fame of her beauty began to spread to all the neighboring villages. Why do I say neighboring? It spread to distant cities.' and even entered the royal salons and came to the attention of all kinds of people. And as if she were a rare object or a miraculous image, they came from far and near to see her. Her father watched over her, and she watched over herself, for there are no locks or bars or bolts that protect a maiden better than her own modesty and virtue. The father's wealth and the daughter's beauty moved many from the village as well as strangers to ask for her hand, but the farmer, in possession of so rich a jewel, was somewhat perplexed and could not decide to which of the countless suitors he should give her. I was one of the many who had this virtuous desire, and I had many great hopes of success knowing that her father knew who I was, since I came from the same village and was pure of blood and in the flower of my youth and had a rich estate and was not lacking in intelligence. Another man from our village, with the same qualifications, had also asked for her hand, causing her father to hesitate, unable to reach a decision for it seemed to him that either one of us would be a good match for his daughter. In order to resolve the problem, he determined to discuss it with Leandra, which is the name of the wealthy maiden who keeps me in misery, for he believed that since we were equally qualified, it was a good idea to allow his beloved daughter to choose to her liking, a course of action worthy of imitation by all parents who wish their children to marry. I don't say they should be permitted to choose the base or wicked, but they should be offered the good and then be allowed to choose freely. I don't know which of us Leandra chose. I know only that her father put off both of us, with references to his daughter's youth and other general remarks that did not commit him but did not dismiss us either. My rival's name is Anselmo, and I am called Eugenio, so now you know the names of all the persons who take part in this tragedy, which is not yet concluded.' though it seems clear enough that its end will be calamitous. At about this time, a certain Vicente de la Rosa came to town. He was the son of a poor farmer from our village and had been a soldier in Italy and in many other places. He had been taken away from our village when he was a boy of twelve by a captain passing through with his troops, and the boy returned twelve years later, dressed as a soldier, decked out in a thousand colors and wearing a thousand glass trinkets and thin metal chains.' One day he would put on one piece of finery, and the next day another, but all of them were flimsy and garish, lightweight and worthless. Farmers who by nature are crafty, and who become the very embodiment of craftiness when idleness gives them the opportunity, noticed this, and counted each object and piece of finery, and discovered that he had three outfits, each a different color, with garters and hose to match, but he mixed and combined them so cleverly that if you did not keep count, you would have sworn he had displayed more than ten matched outfits and more than twenty proud plumes. And do not think that what I am saying about his clothes is irrelevant or trivial, because they play an important part in this story. He would sit on a stone bench that is under a great poplar tree in our village square, and there he would keep us all open-mouthed with suspense as he recounted great deeds to us. There was no land anywhere in the world that he had not seen and no battle in which he had not fought. He had killed as many Moors as live in Morocco and Tunis, and had engaged in more single combat than Gante and Luna, Diego Garcia de Paredes, and another thousand men he named, and from all of them he had emerged victorious, without shedding a single drop of blood. On the other hand, he would show us the scars of wounds, "'and even though we could not make them out, "'he let us know that they had been caused "'by shots from flintlocks in various battles and skirmishes. "'Finally, with unparalleled arrogance, "'he would address his equals, even those who knew him, as Vos, "'saying that his father was his fighting arm, his lineage his deeds, "'and as a soldier he owed nothing to no man, not even the king. "'In addition to this arrogance,' He was something of a musician who could strum a guitar so well that some said he could make it speak. But his talents did not end here. He also was a poet, and for each trivial event in the village he would compose a ballad at least a league and a half long. This soldier, then, whom I have just described, this Vicente de la Rosa, this brave gallant, this musician and poet— was often seen and observed by Leandra from a window in her house that overlooked the square. She became infatuated with the glitter of his bright clothes and enchanted by his ballads, for he made twenty copies of each one he composed. She heard of the deeds that he himself attributed to himself, and finally, as the devil must have ordained, she fell in love with him, before the presumptuousness of asking for her hand had even occurred to him. And since in matters of love no affair is easier to conclude successfully than the one supported by the lady's desire, Leandra and Vicente easily reached an understanding, and before any of her many suitors became aware of her desire, she had satisfied it by leaving the house of her dearly loved father, for she has no mother, and fleeing the village with the soldier, who emerged more triumphant from this undertaking than from the many others he had claimed for himself. This turn of events astonished the entire village, as well as anyone who even heard about it. I was stunned. Anselmo shocked, her father grief-stricken, her kinfolk humiliated, the law solicitous and its officers alert. They took to the roads, searched the woods and everything they ran across, and at the end of three days they found the capricious Leandra in a cave in the wild, wearing only her chemise, and without the great quantity of money and precious jewels she had taken from her house.' They brought her back to her anguished father and questioned her about her misfortune. She confessed willingly that Vicente de la Rosa had deceived her, promising to be her husband and persuading her to leave her father's house, saying that he would take her to the richest and most joyous city in the world, which was Naples. Ill-advised and badly deceived, she had believed him, and, after robbing her father, had entrusted herself to him on the night she had fled and he had taken her to a rugged mountain and confined her to the cave where she had been found. She also said that the soldier did not take her honor but robbed her of everything else she had and left her in that cave and went away, a series of events that astonished everyone a second time. It was hard for us to believe in the young man's restraint, but she affirmed it so insistently that her disconsolate father found reason to be consoled caring nothing for the treasure that had been taken from him, for his daughter had preserved the jewel that, once lost, can never be recovered. On the same day that Leandra appeared, her father removed her from our sight and locked her away in a convent, in a town not far from here, hoping that time would dissipate some of the shame that had fallen on his daughter. Leandra's extreme youth helped to excuse some of her inexcusable behavior, at least for those who had nothing to gain from her being either wicked or virtuous but those who were familiar with her considerable intelligence and perspicacity attributed her sin not to ignorance, but to her boldness and the natural inclination of women, which, for the most part, tends to be imprudent and irrational. With Leandra cloistered, Anselmo's eyes were left sightless. At least they saw nothing that made him happy. Mine were darkened, lacking a light that could lead them to any joy. With Leandra's absence, our sorrow grew, our patience lessened, and we cursed the soldier's finery and despised her father's lack of foresight. Finally, Anselmo and I agreed to leave the village and come to this valley, where he pastures a large number of sheep that belong to him, and I graze a large flock of my goats. And we spend our lives among the trees, proclaiming our passions, or together singing the praises of Leandra, or reviling her or sighing alone and communicating our laments to heaven. In imitation of us, many of Leandra's other suitors have come to these wild mountains to follow our example, and there are so many of them that this place, so crowded with shepherds and sheepfolds, seems to have been transformed into the pastoral Arcadia. And no matter where you go, you will hear the name of the beautiful Leandra. One curses her and calls her unpredictable, inconstant and immodest, "'another condemns her as forward and flighty. "'One absolves and pardons her, another judges and censures her. "'One celebrates her beauty, another denounces her nature. "'In short, all despise her and all adore her. "'And the madness goes so far "'that there are some who complain of her disdain but never spoke to her, "'and some even lament their fate and feel the raging disease of jealousy, "'though she never gave anyone reason to feel jealousy "'because, as I have said, her sin was discovered before her desire.' There is no hollow rock, no bank of a stream, no shade of a tree that is not occupied by a shepherd telling his misfortunes to the air. The echoes repeat the name of Leandra wherever it can be sounded. The mountains ring with the name of Leandra, the streams murmur Leandra, and Leandra has us all bewitched and enchanted, hoping without hope and fearing without knowing what it is we fear. Among all these madmen... The one who shows the least distraction and has the most judgment is my rival Anselmo, who, having so many other things to complain of, complains only of her absence, and to the sound of a rebeck, which he plays admirably, and in verses that show his fine intelligence, he sings his complaints. I follow another path, which is easier and, in my opinion, more correct, which is to speak ill of the fickle nature of women.' and their inconstancy, their double dealings, their dead promises, their broken vows, and finally their irrationality in choosing the objects of their desire and affection. And this was the reason, senores, for the words and arguments I addressed to this goat when I arrived here. For since she is a female, I hold her in small esteem, though she is the best in my flock. This is the history I promised to tell. If I have gone on too long, I will not give short shrift to serving you. My sheepfold is close by, and there I have fresh milk and delicious cheese and a variety of seasonal fruits, as pleasing to the sight as to the taste. Chapter 52 Regarding the quarrel that Don Quixote had with the goatherd, as well as the strange adventure of the penitents, which he brought to a successful conclusion, by the sweat of his brow. The tale of the goatherd pleased all who heard it, especially the canon, who, with remarkable curiosity, noted the manner in which he had told it, for he was as far from resembling a rustic goatherd as he was close to seeming an intelligent courtier, and so he said that the priest was absolutely correct when he claimed that the mountains bred educated men. Everyone paid compliments to Eugenio, but the most liberal in doing so was Don Quixote, who said to him, "'There can be no doubt, brother goatherd, "'that if I were able to embark upon a new adventure, "'I wouldst begin immediately to bring thine to a happy conclusion. "'For despite the abbess and all those who might wish to prevent it, "'I would rescue Leandra from the convent, "'where she is surely held against her will, "'and place her in thy hands, "'so that thou couldst do with her as thou wouldst, "'and as it pleaseth thee, "'always, however, adhering to the laws of chivalry.' which commandeth that no damsel shall have any offence whatsoever committed against her person. And I trusteth in God our Lord that the power of an evil enchanter is not so great that it canst not be overcome by that of another enchanter with more virtuous intentions. And when that happeneth, I vow to give thee my help and assistance as I am obliged to do by my profession, which is none other than favouring the weak and helpless. The goatherd looked at him. And when he saw Don Quixote so badly dressed and looking so shabby, he was taken aback. And he asked the barber, who was not far away, Senor, who is this man who looks so peculiar and talks in this fashion? Who would he be, responded the barber, but the famous Don Quixote of La Mancha, writer of wrongs, redresser of grievances, defender of damsels, scourge of giants, and victor in battle? That sounds to me responded the goatherd, like the things one reads in books about knights-errant, who did everything your grace says with regard to this man, though it seems to me that either your grace is joking, or this gentleman must have a few vacant chambers in his head. "'You are a villain and a scoundrel,' said Don Quixote, "'and you are the one who is vacant and foolish. I have more upstairs than the whore who bore you ever did.' As he was speaking and saying this, he seized a loaf of bread that was beside him, and hit the goatherd with it, full in the face, with so much fury that he flattened his nose. But the goatherd, who cared nothing for jokes, and when he saw how badly he was being mistreated, with little regard for the carpet or the table linen or those who were eating, he leaped on Don Quixote and put both hands around his neck and surely would have choked him. If Sancho Panza had not come up just then— "'seized him by the shoulders, and thrown him down on the makeshift table, "'breaking plates, shattering cups, and spilling and scattering everything that was on it. "'Don Quixote, when he found that he was free, threw himself on top of the goatherd, "'and he, his face covered in blood and bruised where Sancho had kicked him, "'crawled on all fours, looking for a knife on the table to take his bloody revenge, "'but was prevented from doing so by the canon and the priest.' The barber, however, helped the goatherd to hold Don Quixote down and rained down on him so many blows that the poor knight's face bled as heavily as his adversary's. The canon and the priest doubled over with laughter. The officers of the Brotherhood jumped up and down with glee, and everyone sicked them on as if they were dogs involved in a fight. Only Sancho Panza despaired, because he could not shake free from one of the canon's servants who prevented him from helping his master. In short, everyone was diverted and amused, except for the two who were flailing away at each other. When they heard a trumpet, a sound so mournful it made them turn toward the place where it seemed to originate. But the one most aroused by the sound was Don Quixote, and though he lay beneath the goatherd, much against his will and more than a little battered, he said to him, "'Brother demon!' for it is not possible that you are anything else, since you have had sufficient power and strength to overcome mine. I implore you, let us call a truce, for no more than an hour, because it seems to me that the dolorous sound of the trumpet reaching our ears summons me to a new adventure. The goatherd, who by this time was weary of hitting and being hit, released him immediately. And Don Quixote rose to his feet as he turned toward the sound, and suddenly saw many men dressed in white in the manner of penitents coming down a slope. In fact, that year the clouds had denied the earth their moisture, and in every village and hamlet in the region there were processions, rogations, and public penances asking God to open the hands of his mercy and allow it to rain. To this end, the people from a nearby village were coming in procession to a holy hermitage located on one of the hills that formed the valley. Don Quixote saw the strange dress of the penitents, and not recalling the countless times he must have seen them in the past, he imagined that this was the start of an adventure, and since he was a knight-errant, he alone could undertake it and this idea was confirmed for him when he thought that an image draped in mourning that they were carrying was actually a noble lady carried away against her will by those cowardly and low-born villains. No sooner had this thought passed through his mind than he rushed over to Rocinante, who was grazing, removed the bridle and shield from the forebow of his saddle, and had the bridle on him in a moment— He asked Sancho for his sword, mounted Rocinante, grasped his shield, and called in a loud voice to all those present, "'Now, my valiant companions, you will see how important it is "'that there be knights in the world who profess the order of knight-errantry. "'Now I say that you will see, in the liberty of that good lady held captive there, "'how knights-errant are to be esteemed.' "'As he said this, he pressed Rocinante with his thighs,' because he had no spurs, and at a brisk canter, for nowhere in this true history do we read that Rocinante ran at a full gallop. He rode out to his encounter with the penitents, although the priest, the canon, and the barber did what they could to stop him. To no avail, nor was he stopped by the shouts of Sancho, who cried, where are you going, Senor Don Quixote? What demons in your heart incite you to attack our Catholic faith? Oh, look, devil, take me and see that it's a procession of penitents, and the lady they're carrying on the platform is the holy image of the Blessed Virgin. Think, Senor, about what you're doing, because this time it really isn't what you think. Sancho's efforts were all in vain because his master was so determined to reach the figures and sheets and to free the lady in mourning that he did not hear a word, and if he had, he would not have turned back, even if the king had ordered him to. And so he reached the procession and reined in Rosinante, who already wanted to rest for a while, and in a hoarse, angry voice he cried, Oh, you who keep your faces covered, perhaps because you are evil, attend and hear what I wish to say to you. The first to stop were those carrying the image, and one of the four clerics intoning the litanies saw the strange appearance of Don Quixote, the skinniness of Rocinante, and other comic features that he noticed and discovered about the knight, and responded by saying, Good brother, if you want to say something, say it quickly, because these brethren are disciplining their flesh, and we cannot listen to anything, nor is it right for us to do so, unless it is so brief that it can be said in two words. I shall say it in one replied Don Quixote, and it is this, you must immediately release that beauteous lady whose tears and melancholy countenance are clear signs that you take her against her will and have done her some notable wrong, and I, who was born into the world to right such iniquities, shall not consent to your taking another step forward until you give her the freedom she desires and deserves. When they heard these words, they all realized that Don Quixote had to be a madman and they began to laugh very heartily. This laughter was like gunpowder thrown into the flames of Don Quixote's wrath, because without saying another word he drew his sword and charged the procession. One of the men who was carrying the platform let his companions bear his share of the weight, and came out to meet Don Quixote, brandishing the forked pole or staff that he used to support the platform while he was resting. Don Quixote struck it a great blow with his sword that broke it in two, leaving the man with the third part in his hand, and with that part he hit Don Quixote so hard on the shoulder, on the same side as his sword, that the knight could not hold up his shield to protect himself from the peasantish attack, and poor Don Quixote fell to the ground in a very sorry state. Sancho Panza, who came panting close behind him, saw him fall, and he shouted at Don Quixote's attacker not to hit him again, because he was a poor, enchanted knight who had never harmed anyone in all the days of his life. But what stopped the peasant was not the shouting of Sancho, but his seeing that Don Quixote lay without moving hand or foot. And believing that he had killed him, he quickly tucked his penitent's robe up into his belt and fled across the countryside like a deer. By now, all of Don Quixote's companions had reached the spot where he lay. Those in the procession, who saw them, along with the officers holding their crossbows, running toward them, feared trouble and made a circle around the image. With their pointed hoods raised, and their scourges in hand, and the priests clutching their candlesticks, they awaited the assault, determined to defend themselves against their attackers and even go on the offensive if they could. But fortune arranged matters better than they had expected. "'because the only thing Sancho did "'was to throw himself on the body of his master "'in the belief that he was dead "'and break into the most woeful and laughable lament in the world. "'The priest was recognized by another priest in the procession, "'and this calmed the fears of both parties. "'The first priest quickly gave the second a brief accounting "'of who Don Quixote was,' and the second priest, along with the entire crowd of penitents, went to see if the poor knight was dead, and they heard Sancho Panza, with tears in his eyes, saying, O oh, flower of chivalry, a single blow with a club has brought your well-spent years to an end. Oh, honor of your lineage, honor and glory of all La Mancha, even of all the world, which, with you absent, will be overrun by evildoers unafraid of being punished for their evil doings. Oh, liberal above all Alexanders, for after a mere eight months of service, you have given me the best insula ever surrounded and encircled by the sea. O oh, humble with the proud, and arrogant with the humble, attacker of dangers, and juror of insults, enamored without cause, imitator of the good, scourge of the wicked, enemy of the villainous, in short, O oh, knight-errant, which is the finest thing one can say. Sancho's cries and sobs. "'revived Don Quixote, and the first words he said were, "'He who liveth absent from thee, O dulcet Dulcinea, "'is subject to greater miseries than these. "'Help me, friend Sancho, to climb into the enchanted cart. "'I canst no longer sit in Rocinante's saddle, for my shoulder is shattered. "'I'll do that gladly, senor.' "'responded Sancho, "'and let's return to my village "'in the company of these gentlefolk who wish you well, "'and there we'll arrange to make another sally "'that will bring us more profit and greater fame.' "'Well said, Sancho,' responded Don Quixote, "'and it will be an act of great prudence "'to allow the present evil influence of the stars to pass.' "'The canon and the priest and the barber,' told Don Quixote that what he intended to do was very wise, and so, having been greatly amused by the simplicities of Sancho Panza, they placed Don Quixote in the cart just as he had been before. The procession formed once again and continued on its way. The goatherd took his leave of everyone, the officers did not wish to go any farther, and the priest paid them what he owed them. The canon asked the priest to inform him of what happened to Don Quixote, if he was cured of his madness or continued to suffer from it, and with this he excused himself and continued his journey. In short, they parted and went their separate ways, and those remaining were the priest, the barber, Don Quixote, Panza, and the good Rocinante, who endured everything he saw with as much patience as his master.' The driver yoked his oxen and settled Don Quixote on a bundle of hay, and with his customary deliberateness followed the route indicated by the priest. And in six days they reached Don Quixote's village, which they entered in the middle of the day, which happened to be Sunday, when everyone was in the square, and the cart carrying Don Quixote drove right through the middle of it. Everyone hurried to see what was in the cart, and when they recognized their neighbor, they were astounded.' and a boy ran to give the news to the housekeeper and niece that their uncle and master had arrived, skinny and yellow and lying on a pile of hay in an ox-cart. It was a pitiful thing to hear the cries of the two good women, to see how they slapped themselves and cursed once again the accursed books of chivalry, all of which started all over again when they saw Don Quixote come through the door. At the news of Don Quixote's arrival, Sancho Panza's wife came running, for she had already learned that her husband had gone away with him to serve as his squire, and as soon as she saw Sancho, the first thing she asked was if the donkey was all right. Sancho responded that he was better than his master. "'Thanks be to God,' she replied, "'for all his mercies. But now tell me, my friend, "'what have you earned after all your squiring? "'Have you brought me a new overskirt? "'Did you bring nice shoes for your children?' I didn't bring anything like that, dear wife, said Sancho, though I do have other things that are more valuable and worthwhile. That makes me very happy, she responded. Show me those things that are more valuable and worthwhile, my friend. I want to see them and gladden this heart of mine, which has been so sad and unhappy during all the centuries of your absence. I'll show them to you at home, said Panza. And for now be happy, because if it's God's will that we go out again in search of adventures, in no time you'll see me made a count, or the governor of an insula, and not any of the ones around here, but the best that can be found. May it please God, my husband, because we surely need it. But tell me, what's all this about, insulas? I don't understand. Honey's not for the donkey's mouth. "'responded Sancho. "'In time you will, dear wife, "'and even be amazed to hear yourself called ladyship by all your vassals.' "'What are you saying, Sancho, about ladyships, insulas, and vassals?' "'responded Juana Panza, which was the name of Sancho's wife. "'They were not kin, but in La Mancha, "'wives usually take their husband's family name. "'Don't be in such a hurry, Juana, to learn everything all at once. "'It's enough that I'm telling you the truth, so sew up your mouth.' I'll just tell you this in passing, there's nothing nicer in the world for a man than being the honored squire of a knight-errant seeking adventures. Even though it's true that most don't turn out as well as the men would like, because out of a hundred that you find, ninety-nine tend to turn out wrong and twisted. I know this from experience, because in some I've been tossed in a blanket, and in others I've been beaten. But even so, it's a fine thing to be out looking for things to happen, crossing mountains, searching forests, climbing peaks, visiting castles, and staying in inns whenever you please, and not paying a devil's maravedí for anything. While Sancho Panza and Juana Panza, his wife, were having this conversation, Don Quixote's housekeeper and niece welcomed him and undressed him and put him in his old bed. He stared at them, his eyes transfixed, and did not understand where he was. The priest instructed the niece to look after her uncle with great care, and to be very sure she did not allow him to escape again, telling her all that they had been obliged to do to bring him home. At this, the two women began to cry out to heaven again, and to renew their curses of books of chivalry, and to ask heaven to throw the authors of so many lies and so much foolishness into the bottomless pit. In short, they were distraught and fearful that they would again find themselves without a master and an uncle at the very moment he showed some improvement. And, in fact, it turned out just as they imagined. But the author of this history, although he has investigated with curiosity and diligence, the feats performed by Don Quixote on his third sally has found no account of them, at least not in authenticated documents. Their fame has been maintained only in the memories of La Mancha, which tell us that the third time Don Quixote left home, he went to Saragossa and took part in some famous tourneys held in that city, and there things happened to him worthy of his valour and fine intelligence. Nor could he find or learn anything about Don Quixote's final end, and never would have, if good fortune had not presented him, with an ancient physician who had in his possession a leaden box that he claimed to have found in the ruined foundations of an old hermitage that was being renovated. In this box he discovered some parchments on which, in Gothic script, Castilian verses celebrated many of the knight's exploits and described the beauty of Dulcinea of Toboso, the figure of Rocinante, the Fidelity of Sancho Panza, and the Tomb of Don Quixote, with various epitaphs and eulogies to his life and customs. Those that were legible and could be transcribed are the ones that the trustworthy author of this new and unparalleled history has set down here. This author does not ask compensation from his readers for the immense labor required to investigate and search all the Manchegan archives in order to bring this history to light. He asks only that they afford it the same credit that judicious readers give to the books of chivalry that are esteemed so highly in the world. With this, he will consider himself well-paid and satisfied, and encouraged to seek and publish other histories, if not as true, then at least as inventive and entertaining as this one. The first words written on the parchment discovered in the lead box were these. The Academicians of La Argamasia in La Mancha, and the life and death of the valiant Don Quixote of La Mancha HOC Scripsirunt Ignoramus Academician of La Argamasia at the tomb of Don Quixote Epitaph The numb skull who so bravely draped La Mancha with more rich spoils than Jason brought to Crete, the mind that deemed the pointed vein to be needed when something blunter would be meet the arm whose mighty power extends so far that from Cathay to Italian Gaeta's shore came the most awesome muse, the most aware who e'er graved verses on a plaque of bronze, he who left each Amadis behind, who turned his mighty back on Galaor and vanquished all in valour and in love, causing every Belianis to fall mute, who mounted Rocinante and went erring, lies here beneath this cold and marble stone. By the Fauner, Academician of La Argamasia In Laudem Dulcinea of Toboso. Sonnet. She, with the homely face of a kitchen wench, her bosom high, her gestures fierce and martial, is Dulcinea, Queen of all Toboso, beloved of the mighty Don Quixote. For her sake he climbed every rugged peak of the great Sierra and trod the countryside from famed Montiel to the green and grassy plain of Aranjuez, on foot weary in pain. The fault was Rosinantes. Oh, harsh the fate of this Manchigan lady and her knight, errant and unvanquished! In tender youth she left her beauty behind her when she died. And he, though his name's inscribed in snowy marble could not escape the piercing toils of love. By Capricious, the most discerning academician of La Argamasia, in praise of Rocinante, the horse of Don Quixote of La Mancha. Sonnet Upon the proud and gleaming diamond throne, where mighty Mars leaves footprints marked in blood, The mad Manchigan plants his noble banner that flutters still with strength so rare and strange, and there he hangs his arms, the sharp-edged steel that devastates and cleaves and cuts in twain. New feats of arms, but art must now invent a new style for this newest paladin. And if Gaul boasts and brags of Amadis, whose brave descendants' glory brought to Greece and spread her fame and triumph far and wide, today, in the chamber where Bellona reigns, she crowns the brave Quixote, and for his sake, La Mancha's honoured more than Greece or Gaul. Ne'er may these glories bear oblivion's stain, for even Rocinante, in gallantry, surpasses Briadoro and Bayardo. By Mocker, Agamasian academic, to Sancho Panza. Sonnet This is Sancho Panza, in body small, but great in valor, a miracle most strange. He was, I swear and certify to you, the simplest squire the world has ever seen. A hair's breadth away from being a count, but insolence and insult, a miser's world, a greedy time, conspired all against him, for a donkey ne'er is spared that injury. He rode that ass, and pardon the expression, a gentle squire behind an even gentler horse named Rocinante and his master. Oh, how we mortals wait and hope in vain. At first, how sweet the promise, then bitterly it vanishes in shadow, smoke, and dream. By devil-kin academician of La Argamasilla, at the tomb of Don Quixote. Epitaph. Here lies the famous knight errant and badly bruised, and borne by Rosinante down many a primrose path. Sancho Panza, the simple, lies here too, beside him, the squire most loyal and true, who ever plied the trade. By TikTok, Academician of La Argamasia, at the tomb of Dulcinea of Toboso. Epitaph Here rests the fair Dulcinea once rosy, fleshed, and plump, now turned to dust and ashes by fearful, hideous death. She came of unsullied stock with a hint of nobility, the pure passion of great Quixote, and the glory of her home. These were the verses that could be read. In the others, the writing was worm-eaten, and they were given to an academician to be deciphered. Our best information is that he has done so after many long nights of laborious study, and intends to publish them, hoping for a third sally by Don Quixote. For altro cantera, con miglior plectio. Perhaps another will sing in a better style.